I want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, there is an ordinariness, an ordinary nature that our church welcomes and leans into heavy. And that ordinary nature is that on a regular basis, week after week, me or somebody else comes and opens this Bible, the same Bible, the one that we have received from God. We read a part of it. We pray about it. We sing about it. We think about it. We talk about it. And we let the word of God wash over us and change us. We say this a lot here. We say the word matters. And I hope that that's true of you. I hope that it's okay for that to happen, for us to gather on a regular basis and ask God, leaning into his word, believing that it will change our lives. I hope that's you. If that's you, I wanna invite you to grab your copy of God's word. If you don't have a copy, it should be on the screen. We're gonna read from Matthew chapter six, verses five to 15. From, Ma- from Matthew chapter six, verses five to 15. We'll let the word of God rule and reign over us this morning. As you turn there, I want to just say something about the series that we're in. We're in a series, Teach Us to Pray. I hope that's been your prayer this week, that God really would teach you to pray. I hope that this week has been marked with a spirit and even an action of prayer more than ever, perhaps. It's been fitting this past week. And so I hope that it has truly been soaked in prayer. Church, our Father, he... He awaits our prayers. And as we looked at last week, he even expects us to pray, knowing that he is good, seeing our own dependence, our, or our weakness rather, would we not respond in dependence and glorify God in prayer? Last week, we looked at the fact that God expects it. This week, we'll look at this idea that prayer is learned. In its basis sense, it's calling out to God. We all know how to do that. We've all done it, right? From foxholes to, to, uh, to test day, right? We've all called out to God. We know that. And on a serious note, when pain really strikes, when fear threatens us, we know how to pray. We call out to God. We see our weakness. We know he's good, and so we pray to him. And this week, we look at this idea that there is an aspect that we need to lean into, and that's learning how to pray. Unfortunately, Jesus teaches us. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. This is what the Word of God says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. 
This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless it. Father, simply, we ask that you bless your word. Your word matters and we need it. We're helpless without it. Would you show us in the way that we should go? Would you teach us to pray? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, again, we saw that it was possible that we pray so little because we fail to see God's goodness and our own helplessness. And so maybe that's your testimony. You say, well, okay, that's true of me. I have failed to see my own helplessness. I've failed to see God's goodness and therefore I don't pray. I don't pray as often as I should. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe another reason why you have prayed so little if you're like me is because you don't know how to pray. Maybe you've never truly learned how to pray. And so whether you're 75 years old or older or whether you're three years old, if you can hear me this morning, I would encourage you to listen. Jesus is going to teach you how to pray. That's good news, isn't it? If anybody would teach us to pray, would we not listen to Jesus? The fact that we can learn to pray should be an encouragement to every one of us this morning. You might think, of your own life, you think, well, I I just don't have that natural ability to pray. I don't have this or I don't have that. I'm not well-spoken. I don't have very uh, deep thoughts about this or that. Well, the good news is the fact that it's uh, something that you can be educated on, it's something that you can learn and grow in should serve to encourage you this morning. So no matter how how weak or strong your prayer life is right now, you can learn how to grow and to pray even better as a result of Jesus' teaching this morning. Our prayers may often be as simple as cries and nothing more than what a newborn baby would offer, as even as we've heard this morning and been blessed by it. That child may not even know what is needed. We shouldn't let the content of our prayers the weak nature of it be left at that level. Now we should desire to improve. And just as a baby slowly adds words to its vocabulary and begins to string together requests and understands its own needs more fully until the day that it can clearly let you know what it is that they need, so it should be with us. Yes, if all you know how to pray this morning is, God, help me, then pray that prayer. But just as a baby learns to request of its mother and father more clearly and accurately, would we not do the same by listening and by doing? Several of you this year, you read a book by Andrew Murray. He was a South African minister and he was the author of a very popular book entitled With Christ in the School of Prayer. In that, he wrote this, reading a book about prayer, listening to lectures, and I would add sermons, and talking about it is very good, but it will not teach you to pray. You get nothing without exercise, without practice. I might listen for a year to a professor of music about playing the most beautiful music, but that won't teach me to play an instrument. This morning, if you desire to pray, one of the chief ways that you will begin to grow and learn more about prayer is to do just this, pray, to pray. And so don't forget, lean into the expectation of Christ, to the welcoming invitation of God the Father that we pray to him and forget what people hear around you, peer into eternity 
and speak to our Father. As we look at this text this morning, though, I want to turn our attention to this idea that we must learn about prayer. But as we learn about prayer, the first thing that Jesus tells us this morning is that there are things that we must unlearn about prayer. There are things that we do naturally in our sinful state that is unhelpful, unbiblical, and I would argue even sinful. And so there's some things that we must unlearn. Jesus is saying as much in this text. And so things about prayer to unlearn. First, we find in verses five and six, and that is the desire to be praised. The desire to be praised. Look at five and six. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Isn't it odd that a means of grace such as prayer can be idolatrously turned to be a corrupt method of garnering praise for yourself? It is though. It's ironic because true prayer, as we saw last week, is an act of dependence, not independence. It affirms vulnerability. It affirms weakness. It exalts the one to whom it is directed. When we pray to God, we're lifting him up. We're making much of him as the one who can help us. We, the ones in need. And yet these hypocrites were using prayer, how? As a means to lift themselves up in the eyes of the people around them. Of course, prayer in public and prayer in private, both of these are appropriate at various times. Of course they are. Jesus is not condemning that we pray in public. Don't do that. Of course he he wants us to do that. They did it together, Jesus and his disciples. And even more, the church has done that together for 2,000 years. No, he's he's conveying a message to us that, that prayer can be done in the privacy of your home as well as on the corner. The location is not what Jesus is taking issue with. It is the desire of the heart of the one that is giving the prayer. These hypocrites of which Jesus is speaking, they're not concerned with God hearing them. They're concerned with those around them hearing them. This is a shameful, shameful thing, is it not? And wouldn't it be... A, even more shameful, if we could read this passage and think less of the hypocrites and in some way think more of ourselves. Somehow we have passed through this passage unscathed. That isn't me. I don't, I don't pray in the corners. I don't pray, you know, on the rooftops. and let people see me. I, I like to pray in the prayer closet. Lest you think you can somehow get through this unscathed, I want to turn your attention to James chapter 4. James chapter four, we'll read verses one through 10. This is what the word of God says. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? By the way, that's on every level. That's politically, that's in your family, that's in your own life. What causes quarrels? What causes fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, your passions against somebody else's. You desire to have, and so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. Maybe he's taking it to the farthest degree that maybe it's not exactly in your life. You haven't murdered anybody. 
And yet you wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past you. I wouldn't put it past me sometimes. My own passions out of control, doing what they want. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. We'll talk about that next week a little bit more. But you ask, he says in verse three, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. You ask wrongly. What are you? How are you asking? Well, you're asking to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world, what does that mean? That your worldview, your system of thought, when you allow your passions to rule you, that's friendship with the world. That's assuming their worldview. That's assuming the goals of the world. That's enmity. That's war declared against God. Therefore, it says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the one that is self-serving. God opposes, he rejects the prayer that is bent toward one's own glory. He opposes the proud, but he does what? He gives grace to the humble. So what are we to do? If that's us this morning, what are the hypocrites? What are the Pharisees that pray in the street corners? What are they to do? And what are we to do? that also desire so great, so greatly that we be thought more highly of than we are currently, at least in our own perception. Well, verse seven, we're to submit ourselves therefore to God. We're to resist the devil and he will flee from us. We're to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he then will exalt you. There's so much there to unpack, but do you just catch this? There's a double-mindedness that is talked about in James chapter four. And if we go to God in prayer, trying to demonstrate in some way a semblance of care that God would be praised, that God's name would be hallowed, and yet our true desire is that we be thought better of or not less of, then we too are double-minded. That desire in your heart that you be thought less of, it's a sinful longing and it's really, it's present in all of us. And the dangerous part about them is that they really undermine and they interfere with the goal of prayer. So it's not too difficult for us to, us to understand that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And a double-minded prayer is also. And so when we approach God and our desire is that we somehow be praised and at the same time praise God, know this, that it doesn't fly. That prayer doesn't leave. Your prayers can't be bent on your desires sinfully and not God's glory. And where those two things diverge, your prayers fail. God rejects those prayers. And what's worse is that Jesus declares that they have received their reward. 
And in a sense, that's condemnation, but it's also just logical. Do you, do you follow that? They've acquired what they crave. They, they want men to hear them, and sadly, the men hear them. And so these hypocrites, they're satisfied with people thinking they're in communication with God when they really could have had true communication with God. Think about that. It's like walking around wearing a Ferrari jacket with a fake key fob that's, that says Ferrari on it and uh, going down to the local coffee shop and, and acting like you have a Ferrari in the parking garage when you really could have a Ferrari in the parking garage. Isn't that silly? It's, it's sad. And yet these hypocrites are satisfied with that. And so what are we to do when we consider the hypocrites? Are we really to, are we to shun them? Are we to hate them or are we to pity them this morning? And to pity ourselves, as James 4 says, to weep and howl that that may be us as well. That we would rather have people think highly of us than us to really be in communication with God. And for our prayers to truly be heard. There is no greater reward than that. Than to be in fellowship, meaningful relationship with our Lord. And as one pastor put it, are you too easily satisfied this morning, are you more satisfied that people in this church, that people in your family and on your street and in your clump of cubicles, that they would think more highly of you than you really are? Would you rather have one or the other? Jesus is saying to us this morning, the relationship that you have with God, developed through prayer, out of a heart of sincere longing to know him is far greater than somebody thinking in some religious way that you are a decent person. And so this is a habit of prayer that we this morning are to unlearn. Are you more concerned with your peers hearing your prayer than God? And by the way, that goes both ways. To think that to desire that people think highly of you because they've heard you pray, how is that any different than fearing that people will think less of you because you've prayed? It's the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin, both centered on yourself. This habit of prayer, this desire to be praised by others, it has to be unlearned. It has to be unlearned. Before we move on, I want to just ask a question that will help to unpack the motives behind your heart. This isn't an accusatory thing. This isn't some way I'm trying to be uh, attacking to you, but just asking a question, I think it will help. Do you pray more privately than you do publicly? Do you pray more privately than you do publicly? Is it more important that you pray for your meals than you pray to God when you first wake up? Well, the meals are in front of family, co-workers. You want to make a good impression? There's value in that. Demonstrating a holy, dependent life on God in prayer, there's value in that. But ask yourself, do you pray more privately or publicly? The person, I would argue, that prays more in public than, a, than in private really reveals that he's less interested in God's approval than in human praise. The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. I think this is what Jesus is getting at. What's your desire? Do you mean to garner for yourself praise from those around you through your prayer life? 
or do you desire to know God more fully and to depend on him more deeply? Far from fearing people will judge us as unspiritual and uneducated, we should long for God to hear our prayer. Desiring the praise of others is not, only, is not the only habit that we must put away this morning, that we must unlearn. We saw that in verses five and six, but now let's turn to verses seven and eight. Not only is there's this, there's this desire to be praised, but there's also this hope to earn. Verses seven and eight. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Do not heap up empty phrases. What does empty phrases mean? To to speak extensively. Meaningless words. To use too many words to speak for a long time for the, po- for the purpose of speaking a long time. It kind of gives this idea. The longer I pray, the better my chances are of being heard. That's the idea of verses seven and eight. The longer I pray, the more words that I use, the better chance I have of being heard. Really what comes to my mind is the showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I'm gonna impress you guys because I did a little bit of math, Okay. So you got Elijah and you got the prophets of Baal. You got Israel that's turned from God. You've got Elijah who seemingly is the only prophet left. He's the only one not bowed the knee to Baal, which isn't true. But in this showdown, it's him versus 450. This is where the math comes in. The evil prophets, they prayed to Baal all day long. It says that they prayed from morning until noon and then from noon until evening and nothing happened. Just vain repetition, many words. So if you've got, you know, average length of a day from morning to evening, maybe it's a eight hour work day, but just in all fairness, we'll, we'll drop it down to six. Let's say they took, you know, some breaks here and there. 450 prophets praying, roughly around 30 words per minute. I'm sure they prayed more than that. If we added all that up, it's a little bit less than 5 million words that were poured out to their God in hopes that he would hear them. This is the Gentile prayer. This is vain babbling, many words. You compare that, contrast it rather with Elijah's prayer. When they were done, he asked him, are you done? You have anything else to say? Any other words that you could add in there? I mean, you've already spoken 5 million words collectively. What else are you going to add? And Elijah steps forward and he prays a simple 58-word prayer in the English. And what happens? God answers his prayer. And so simply put, do we need to have these long prayers? No. Is there anything wrong with a long prayer? Of course not. But thinking that you can somehow, because you've prayed a long time, or because you've used fancy words, or because you've said the same thing over and over and over and over again, that somehow now God has to answer your prayer, it's foolishness. Here's what we know from what Jesus is teaching. The number of words in your prayer and the length of time you spend in prayer has no bearing on the answer to your prayer. Falsely, we think this, longer prayer equals better prayer. And better prayer equals answered prayer. False. 
false. That's not true with God. That's not true with a God who is good. As he surveys his people who are in need, it's not true. Jesus says here that God knows, that your father knows your need before you even pray. He already knows it. At the heart of this practice is really a self-dependent desire to earn from God what he's already given to us through Christ. The gift of prayer is not given because of you. It's not given because you've earned it. And neither is the answer to prayer. The fact that we can approach God is not because you've done something great. And the fact that he will answer your prayer, as we'll look at next week, it has nothing to do with you, with your righteousness. It has nothing to do with the the fancy words that you use, whether they're worth a $4 word or a 50 cent word, either way. Even the first prayer of yours that God actually received, the prayer of repentance, it is one answered because Jesus prayed toward that end. God have mercy on me, a sinner. That prayer can be heard because Jesus prayed, not, will, not my will, but yours be done. Father, forgive me, I have sinned. That can be heard because Jesus prayed as such, Father, forgive them. See, our access to God the Father is not achieved through works. It is achieved through mercy. There's no secret techniques that move you up from retail ground to priority express when it comes to prayer. It's a foolish thought that polished prayers ascend any faster or truer than the simple prayer of help. So again, to be clear, Jesus is not condemning longer prayers. Of course not. However, if your goal is to earn the ear of God by extending your prayer time, then it's all wrong. It's all wrong. Our confidence should not be in the eloquence of our prayer, but in the effectiveness of our Savior and his sacrifice. And both desire, desiring to be praised, and hope to earn, both of these are functions of the heart. And so when we consider what we're to unlearn as it relates to prayer, it's a matter of the heart. Prayer is not to, is not to be used to glorify yourself, nor is it something that you can earn. These are unbiblical, unhelpful habits that we must unlearn, that we must repent of in our hearts. And so there are bad habits and misconceptions <clears throat> surrounding prayer that we need to unlearn, but But how can we then pray? What are the components of prayer that we are to include when we actually pray? So we want to level up from just help. What do we do? Well, Jesus gives us an example. Over the years, some have referred to verse 9 and following as the Lord's Prayer. But it really isn't the Lord's Prayer. A more proper name for this prayer would be the model prayer. Jesus has given us a model. He's given us an example, and he's teaching his disciples to pray through it. And one of the first components that we see there in verse nine is one of praise, one of praise. Look, it says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I love that use of the pronoun that Jesus offers to us, our father. Don't overlook that. The fact that when Jesus tells his disciples, when Jesus tells Christians, when he tells the church to pray, he says, pray in this way, our father. Let's not miss that. God has given us an invitation through Christ to call him Father. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago. Many people say, well, aren't we all God's children? In some sense, yes. In, a sen- in the sense that he has created all things. Yes, he is our father. But in a spiritual sense, the Bible is extremely clear. And I say this with kindness and in love, but in truth. That if you have not turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your father is not Yahweh. Your father is not God. But as Jesus said, your father is Satan. You do his will. You look like him. You have his mannerisms and not God's. And yet if you are a Christian this morning, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and that invitation is open to all, if you've done that, then you too can pray, our father, my father. It's, it's interesting how Jesus uses pronouns in association with the word father. Here in Matthew, this is a great study for you to do one day. When, when, when he's thinking of forgiveness of sins, he says, your father, not our father, not my father. When he's thinking of Jesus or, or forgiveness of sins, Jesus says, your father. You see that in Mark chapter six, or I'm sorry, Matthew six, verses 14 and 15. He's excluding himself there. But when he speaks of the unique relationship that he has with the Father, one of authority in those senses, what does he say? For instance, Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, he says, my father, not our father, but my father. And here in this passage, he again uses our father. Why? Why does he do that? He's not including himself. This is a model prayer for his disciples. And so he's saying, when you pray, say our father. Now, of course, He is, in another sense, Jesus' father. But the reason why Jesus is not including himself in this, our father, is because Jesus doesn't have any need of his sins to be forgiven. Why? Because he has no sins. But anyway, that's a total different study you could do some other time. But he invites us to pray and direct our needs and our request to our father. And what does he say about our father? Well, he's in heaven. But then he goes on to say, hallowed, be your name. Hallowed is an interesting word. It's the verbal form of holy. If I were to describe God as holy, I would say, well, he's holy. But if I were to turn that into a verb and I would say, God needs to be made holy, then I would say, God needs to be hallowed. Well, that doesn't really translate well, and it's terrible theology. God does not need to be made holy. He is holy. And so what is Jesus telling us to pray then? What is he actually saying here? Well, we're to pray that God would be esteemed. We're to pray that God would be revered for who he really is. In just a moment, we'll take that step a little bit farther. But for now, notice that it's the foundation for every aspect of this prayer that Jesus gives us. That God's name be hallowed. That God's name be esteemed, that it be revered that God would be glorified beginning in our prayer and ending with the consummation of all things. So prayer is true communion with God, but we have to begin with a right order in mind. So he is our father. He sits in heaven. He's enthroned in the clouds. We who approach him dwell on the earth and we approach him with a desire that his name be esteemed and revered in every way. And so it's with this holiness in mind with this hallowedness as a desire that Jesus leads us to the next component, and that's submission. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Kingdom come, will be done. It's really helpful because it kind of has this cadence and rhythm to it, doesn't it? Sounds nice. But to pray your kingdom come is to ask God's rule to be extended now as people bow in submission to him all around the world and already taste of the blessings of salvation that he's given to them. But it's more than that. It's also to cry out for the full consummation of that kingdom, that his kingdom would come more fully. And finally, so in Jesus' day, this is not abnormal. Jesus, in Jesus' day, God-fearing Jews, they were awaiting the kingdom of God. You say, show me, I will. Think of Joseph of Arimathea in Mark chapter 15, verse 43. What did he do there? We know that he was a God-fearing man and he was longing for the kingdom of God to be fulfilled and he believed it was fulfilled in Christ. What about Simeon in Luke chapter two? He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The kingdom of God coming and blessing the children of Israel. And they would pray at the close of each synagogue service. I wasn't there, but I've heard. (laughs) Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in the days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. And to this say, amen. This was the prayer that many Jews for thousands of years would pray at the conclusion of their service. They were looking forward to the kingdom of God, but we Christians, we don't look forward. We look back to the beginning and we do look forward to its final consummation. And we understand that the kingdom has already broken in and we pray for its extension and that extension to begin in our own lives. In some sense, we pray for revival We pray for the will of God to be done in our lives and that it would spread to the ends of the earth. But notice that this part of the prayer, it begins with you, but it is much larger with you. Larger than you, I should say. We're to pray that the kingdom of God would begin in our hearts and that it would extend to the ends of the earth. We pray for the submission of all creation to the will of God beginning here, beginning in your life. And so when we pray, as Jesus said, We pray that God would rule and reign in our own hearts, that his will would be done in our everyday lives and that that wouldn't stop there, but that it would extend to the end of the earth. So there's a warning here that when you pray that prayer, you must actually believe that prayer. You must actually desire that prayer. And so the question I would ask you this morning is, do you really desire that? Do you really desire the will of God to be done in your life? You might in some way desire that God's will be done, but when it comes down to brass tacks, are you really, really willing to make the decisions necessary to bring your life into the submission and will of God and to work towards the coming and fulfillment of his kingdom? Is that your desire? And what does that look like on a daily basis? Not just as you pray, but as you live and breathe and move and make decisions as to what you'll eat and where you'll live and what you'll do with your life. Does he rule in your heart? Is he your king? Submit to him in prayer, church. That's what Jesus is teaching us today. Submit to him in prayer and ask that his kingdom come to the full. As you look around, you'll know this. Do we ever need it? Do we ever need it? And so submission is also a component, but so is request. Look at verses 
11 and 13. First 11, give us this day our daily bread. We'll move quickly. Daily bread stands for physical needs of this life. Of course, we, we depend on God by making our requests made known to him. We also know that he knows them, right? He knows them before we ask them. But because we hallow the name of God, because we depend on the name of God, because we want to revere him and worship him, we depend on him and we make our requests known to him, trusting that he will meet those needs in faith. And I love that he says, give us this day. Why? Because we don't need to somehow get ahead of the game. We don't need to say, well, we need to get it today while we can because tomorrow he may not be good, nor may he be available. No, Jesus is saying today you can trust him and ask for your needs and he'll meet them today. And just in the way that he met the needs of the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness on a daily basis, getting the calories that they needed on a regular basis, they depended on him daily. Even so, we do the same thing. Our physical needs, we meet, we, we rely on God. But he meets all of our needs, not just our physical needs. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last week, we underlined our helplessness. We saw that. And Christian, where do you see your helplessness more clearly than in your own ability, may I add, desire toward temptation and evil? Where have you seen your helplessness more clearly than when you face temptation and when evil threatens you? In and of ourselves, we are unable to avoid temptation, let alone be delivered by it, to be delivered by, for from evil. In line with this teaching, Jesus tells Peter in Luke chapter 22, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, that he might own you. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter says to him, Lord, I already, I, I'm already to go with you to both prison and to death. He totally misses the whole point of this. So much is happening in that little short excerpt that I've just given you from Luke 22. But Jesus is telling Peter, I'm, I'm praying for you to not fail in your faith. And, and, and isn't that quite a thought to think that Jesus is praying for us? Think about that. Jesus, just as he is with Peter, is praying for you. He's praying that prayer that he's asking you to pray. He's praying it for you, and we should pray it as well. We would not be led into temptation, but we would, we would be delivered from evil and the evil one itself. Jesus is praying for you. We can assume that Peter, by his response, that he's living in self-confidence. He's not understanding his need for Christ. Maybe desiring to make a good show for the other, other disciples, he says, no, Lord, I'm ready. No dependence and no humility. And we saw that took, turned out, right? What happened? Well, he failed miserably. Why? He wasn't depending on God. He wasn't depending on Christ himself for his spiritual needs. He can handle this himself. He's got this. And even in Jesus' prayer, he says, listen, When that's all said and done, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Even Jesus knew what would happen. He knew the self-reliance that Peter was exuding and leaning into at that moment. 
We must come to Christ. We must come to God and say, we depend on you, not just for the physical, but also for the spiritual. Depend on God for it. Jesus instructs us as much. And lastly, Jesus asks that we add confession to our prayers. Look at verse 12. Confession. And, we for, and, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's interesting that the request for spiritual debts to be forgiven, it's based on verses 14 and 15. It's, it's based on that clause after forgive us our debts. What is that? As we also have forgiven our debtors. We assume that the request for forgiveness comes after the one requesting has forgiven those who have sinned against himself. The invitation is here, just as we saw last week, that we are to ask God for forgiveness of our sins. And so we ask him, we plead with him not to lead us into temptation, but instead to deliver us from evil. And when we still have failed in temptation, we've still chosen to fall headlong into evil, what does he say? Ask me for forgiveness of your spiritual debts and I will give them to you. 1 John 1, 9. So he's more than willing on the grounds that Christ has in fact paid your sin debt to forgive you. And so ask. And so ask. And so these are some of the components in quick fashion that we are to include when we pray. But now I want you to notice something else, something I alluded to a moment ago. At the beginning of the model prayer, Jesus had us pray that the name of God the Father be hallowed. Hallowed, again, is a, it's a third person imperative. And what that means is we're to pray to God that they or that he, this third person, collectively would, would hallow or make holy God's name. And it kind of, remember, it's a little bit clunky as it translates into English. We don't have third person imperatives, not in this way. But what it's saying is, that our desire is that in all things, God's name would be revered and that that would be our primary desire. And so notice in this model prayer that Jesus has given to us that the foundation for it is the glory and renown and honor of God himself. That his honor would be at the forefront, that his glory would be at the forefront of everything that we pray. And that as we enter into his presence, that we would think of those things and not ourselves. It's not, is it not God's will being done that brings glory to himself? Is it not accomplished in the provision of God's, for God's people physically, as verse 11 says? Is God not glorified? Is he not esteemed when our sins are forgiven, when, when, when his people are delivered from evil, as verse 13 says? Is it not hallowing to God? Is it not esteeming to God when the church, all that Jesus instructs us to pray for is predicated on the hallowing of his name? Everything is based on that. Is that not what brings God the most glory? And that is the basis for why we pray, that God's name would be esteemed. I want to read to you a quote from a, a famous pastor, very helpful. He says this, <clears throat> the essence of the biblical teaching on sin is that it is essentially a disposition. It is a state of heart. 
I suppose that we can sum it up by saying that sin is ultimately self-worship and self-adulation. And our Lord shows, what to me is an alarming and terrifying thing, that this tendency on our part to self-adulation is something that follows us even to the very presence of God. It sometimes produces this result that even when we try to persuade ourselves that we are worshiping God, we are actually worshiping ourselves and doing nothing more. Is it possible that your prayer is more about you than it is about God? Is it, more poss- is it possible that it is more about the hallowing of your name than it is the hallowing of God's? Think about Jesus' first warnings. Don't pray like them. Why? Because their desire, although they say maybe, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, they're ultimately desiring that their name be hallowed and not God's. And so if you're gonna try to find a takeaway for this morning, what would it be? Well, I would argue that the main idea this morning for us is this. The main idea. The foundation of our prayers must be this. The longing for God's name to be esteemed throughout creation. The foundation of our prayers must be this, the longing for God's name to be esteemed throughout creation. Is that how you pray this morning? Is your prayer life marked with this? If you have anything to learn, if I have anything to learn about prayer, it's this. The longing, the the, the desire, the foundation for my prayer must be the longing of God's name to be esteemed throughout creation. That I be laid low set aside, and that Christ be lifted up. This is my hope for this church as we enter into 2021, desiring to be a praying people that God through our prayers would hallow his own name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have been faithful to us. You've been kind to us in the fact that you've given us instructions on how we are to pray. Father, we've referenced James this morning and in your kindness, you have shown us a picture of ourselves in the mirror. As we prepared to jump on and attack the hypocrites, perhaps we found that we are amongst their lot. We thank you for your kindness to us in that way and we ask that you would continue to show us our dependence on you. In and of ourselves, we have no leg to stand on. Would we see your goodness this morning to the more full? God, would our lives, would our hearts manifesting itself in prayer, would it not be bent toward and founded on the esteem of your name throughout all creation? As we depend on you to meet our needs, both spiritual and physical, we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.